This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. We can begin to ask, can we find potential drugs that perhaps can tackle broadly some of the diseases of aging that are causing a significant healthcare burden in society. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. We call it Lama for short. I'm Peter Bose. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, this is another episode from TED Med, the annual conference focusing on health and medicine. Today, artificial intelligence and the treatment of disease at a cellular level. My guest is Ron Alpha. Ron is Vice President of Discovery and Product at Recursion, a company which combines experimental biology with artificial intelligence to try to figure out how we can treat some of those most taxing diseases of our time. Ron, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thank you for having me, Peter. Tell me more about Recursion. So Recursion is an early stage biopharmaceutical company. And at a very high level, our goal is to use machine learning and computational biology uh, to change the way we are moving drugs from the lab to patients. Um, And what that means is we would essentially like to build tools that enable us to more quickly understand both the safety and the efficacy of new chemical entities, new molecules that we are developing in the hopes of advancing those to the clinic as quickly as possible. Drug discovery is a very complex and can be a very long process, a long scientific process. Oftentimes it begins with um, building a model of uh, one or more diseases in cells in the lab um, and then identifying potential molecules that could be drugs um, from that early model, and then you move them through multiple different steps. So the the next step could be testing those molecules in a mouse model, and then from there, testing them in many different uh, models of safety and efficacy, until finally you can get those compounds to clinical trials. The challenge is, you know, it takes a really long time to answer each of those questions, and a drug can fail anywhere along that path. Um, and each each step in that path, you're you're doing biology in a dish or in the lab or in an animal. When really what we can begin to do is collect enough data, uh, biological data, where we can begin to make predictions about how well a particular compound will perform at any one of those steps very early on. So the analogy I like to use is you could think of this as, uh, let's say we had all uh, the satellite image data and traffic data and um, and uh, the street maps of, of our community. And let's say that, you know, our destination represented the treatment for some disease. If we had all that data, perhaps we could understand uh, you know, the path that we had to navigate in order to bring a compound towards that end goal of treating the disease. Right now in biology, we just don't have that data. Uh, we've been, you know, performing experiments 
uh, kind of, you know, one question at a time. Uh, and, and for each drug discovery program, we sort of move in this linear fashion where we ask a question, we test it, we ask another question, we test it. But at recursion, what we're trying to do is sort of back up and say, well, well let's, let's just generate as much data as we can that broadly spans as much of biology as we can, such that we can imagine that we have uh, th- this very complex matrix of all this data, and we can begin to understand the interconnections and the path to move from one point to another point. So you're essentially, you're blitz-creating data or generating data. As you say, you're generating as much data as you possibly can. Yes, that's exactly right. And we can do that now because there have been, you know, there have been advances in in algorithms and machine learning, but there have also been advances in automation, robotics, um, and, and, you know, miniaturization of biology. Uh, so we are able, on one hand, to use software and computational tools, but on the other hand, um, able to simply generate biological data using robotics that perform experiments roughly a hundred thousand per week and collect you know millions of images and using robotics to generate data how accurate is that data well that's the big challenge right right now right if you so for most machine learning companies most what you might call ai companies uh the question becomes well what data are you using um, and so there are two approaches. You can there's a lot of data that's been publicly available, so data that's been generated at universities across the across the globe, um, where investigators have you know, made that data available to others, uh, so-called public large public data sets. And a lot of um, machine learning computational teams are using those types of data sets to begin to make predictions. The challenge with those data sets is, you know, first of all, they've been designed for a different purpose, that purpose being whatever question was being asked when they first developed that data set. Um, And then they've sort of been, you know, placed in the public domain for, you know, the good of mankind. Um, That's great, but um, you actually, so it hasn't been designed for for your use case, and you sort of have no control over the quality of that data. And and that kind of data is used in many, many studies. Yeah, many, many studies. But what you find that, what you find is if if I ran some of the same biology experiments um, in my lab, and then uh, you ran you ran the same experiments in your lab across the country. Um, there's there can be very very poor concordance of that data, um, and so it becomes this question of okay, well, what is what is the real result here? Uh, and so that's sort of the challenge of using these public data sets. What we're able to do is, you know, starting from the beginning, we know where we're going. Um, we know how we're going to build models. Uh, machine learning models, and we know the sorts of assumptions that we're going to take. Um, and so we can make sure that when we build the data set, that it meets certain, first of all, quality criteria, that it is of sufficiently high quality to be um, continuously longitudinally usable, uh, but also that we've included all the appropriate numbers of controls and um, other types of basically metrics where our data science team feels confident that they can use this data to, to build algorithms or build models. And aging is one of the areas that you focus on. Uh, yeah, we've recently started a, a program in aging, and we've re- received a NIH Phase Two grant uh, for those efforts. And really what we're focused on is understanding um, if we can find molecules that uh, reverse what you might call cellular aging or senescence. 
And so what we've done is we've trained computer algorithms to recognize uh, the difference or classify the difference between cells that are either uh, senescent or, or aged in the dish um, from cells that are not aged. Um, and now we can begin to ask, can we find drugs that reverse that particular phenotype of aging? That suggests initially to me that if you could solve that problem, does that solve the problem of aging? Does that stop aging? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So uh, first of all, we, we would have to define what we mean by, by aging. aging. Right. <laughs> but what, you know, what we have found is that... What do you understand by aging? So I would say when we go back to you know, aged cells, senescent cells, what we have found um, in the scientific community is that these cells do account for a large uh, pro- uh, proportion of the morbidity uh, or disease associated with aging. Um, so uh, increases in, in these types of cells can, can increase the probability of cardiovascular disease, disease of cancers, um, of other types of diseases that we typically associate um, with an aging population. Um, and in fact, some great work has shown that um, elimination of these cells, of these aged senescent cells, uh, can actually reduce the probability um, of cardiovascular disease uh, and other diseases of aging. Uh, So we've taken this as a good starting point where we can begin to ask, can we find potential drugs that perhaps can tackle broadly some of the diseases of aging that are causing a significant healthcare burden in society? Because aging to a lot of people is is just that. It is a range of diseases that contribute ultimately to the aging process Yes, and then death. Yes, exactly. So you're not focusing on... Some people like to say and describe aging in itself as the disease. Right. I have problems with that. Yeah, right. I, I can't visualize that. It, it's got to be a combination of factors that lead ultimately to us dying. Yeah, I mean, I can't. I, I have my biases. So I, I, I'm an MD and we're a, a pharmaceutical company. And so we think of when we think of aging, when we think of drug discovery, we're ultimately always focused on human disease um, and trying to understand how we can develop new treatments uh, that reverse human diseases you just mentioned you're an md just tell me a little bit about your background and how you do you deal with patients anymore are you purely now in the development and the technology world uh nope i'm purely in the startup world these days um you know so i I completed my md and phd at stanford university and then um I, i spent some time at the business school and had a little bit of an opportunity to evaluate you know with the ceo chris gibson um the business plan for this particular company for recursion pharma uh, and really, I was so compelled by the vision and the technology uh, that was at hand. So this idea of being able to use computational tools to broadly tackle, you know, both genetic biology, but also cell biology on a much larger basis uh, was so compelling that I decided that, you know, I could make a much bigger impact on medicine, on health by jumping into this startup and, you know, building this organization uh, than I could in practicing medicine. So ultimately, I didn't practice medicine. I uh, joined the team and I've been there for about three years now. You don't sometimes think, oh, what if I'd gone down the other road? And uh, not so far. I mean, you know, things have, you know, we've been very lucky. Things are going great uh, at Recursion. And uh, I think we're, we're making a lot of impact. And 
moving the technology forward very quickly. So you you don't have much time to think about alternatives. Right. And I think what is interesting is the the meeting of minds in this this new world, uh, an MD working with engineers and and computer experts and the, the different disciplines, how they are merging together to essentially engineer the human body. Yes, and I think I think you've struck on perhaps one of the most insightful challenges of operating in this space. And you know, I go to a lot of these industry conferences, and the number one topic we talk about is how do you integrate drug discovery teams with software engineering teams, with data science teams, and in our case, with you know robotics automation teams. Um, and I think one of the things that's allowed Recursion as a company to be incredibly successful is that we've truly spent a lot of our energy over the years thinking about how we bring everyone together um, at the same table to answer these questions using all these different level layers of expertise. You've worked quite a bit on Alzheimer's disease, haven't you? Uh, yes, in a, in a past life I did spend some time on Alzheimer's. Yeah, which is, to my mind, one of the great challenges yes, ahead for it us. Is. What I was doing on Alzheimer's, so initially we were focused on gene therapy for, for Alzheimer's. So we had figured out that um, there are, so you're in Alzheimer's, you're typically seeing loss of neurons in various parts of the brain. Um, and that progressively gets worse as the disease progresses. Um, and the approach we were taking was asking whether um, there were certain factors that could be delivered to that part of the brain um, that can cause these brain cells to stop dying. And so we had found that In fact, there were uh, certain brain-derived factors that prevented cells from dying. And the question became, well, how do we actually uh, develop a method to deliver those to the brain? Uh, So the approach I was taking was um, essentially, can we deliver, you know, a gene that would serve as this normally serve as the signal for one of those factors um, into that into a specific region of the brain? Um, and be able to activate that gene uh, using a, a small molecule drug um, to promote, you know, uh, cell health and to prevent cellular degeneration. Ultimately, the challenge with Alzheimer's, however, is that you know it begins in one part of the brain and it very quickly spreads to, uh, or rather quickly, not necessarily so quickly, slowly. Uh, spreads to other regions of the brain, and it can be a, a difficult thing to to tackle. And a lot of groups right now are more focused on understanding, well, are we coming in too late um, with our therapeutics to really address it? And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yeah, and that's what I hear from a lot of people, that early detection or even detection before the early signs occur right. with Alzheimer's is, is going to be absolutely crucial. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, with most disease, it's always helpful to be able to identify it um, as early as possible. Uh, in the case of the brain where, you know, truly you have cells that um, that are no longer dividing, so your neurons 
um, are what's called post-mitotic. They've, uh, they're established and, and when they die to, to a large extent, um, at least late in life, uh, they are not replenished. Um, and so part of the, the, the challenge with Alzheimer's is once you have these brain cells that have, uh, degenerated or died, um, it becomes very difficult to, uh, figure out ways to, to, you know, replenish them. And there are none. <laughs> there are no ways to do this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. How important, uh, talking about the term artificial intelligence as an, an umbrella term, as we move forward in science and, and in health, how important is AI going to be, do you think, as we tackle the, the great health issues that, uh, that we're trying to solve? And we've just been talking about Alzheimer's. There are many others as well. But as we move forward and, and with that goal of a, a longer health span. It's a great question. And I think there's a lot of debate about what the impact of AI will be in health. Um, and I will say, you know, I have a very biased personal opinion. Um, obviously, I work for a company that's heavily invested in AI. But I would say well, we have seen the impact of artificial intelligence um, and, and machine learning methods on just about every aspect of our daily lives already. And so uh, on a very superficial level, you know, without giving it any logical thought, um, it is almost inconceivable that these types of applications will not begin to make as large an impact on healthcare as they do on, uh, say, our ability to navigate, you know, to our home <laughs> from yeah from the grocery store, yeah. um, which we take for granted now. Yes, yes. I mean, we certainly, you know, I I take my phone out and it recognizes my face, and I can use that to pay for groceries, and that is, you know artificial intelligence it, it not only and, recognizes your face but it remembers where you went at this time last week and exactly. tells you how long it's going to take to get there today and and so i think we will so as these types of applications begin to become deployed in the healthcare industry um then we are going to see you know exponential gains from them uh the big question right now is and it's very much a product question is how do we begin to apply these types of methods in the industry, um, what are the first applications? So, in drug discovery, you know the big question uh, that folks are facing is, well, where do we start in applying uh, machine learning methods to impact, you know, the drug discovery pipeline? Some companies have focused on the clinical end and in, in using applications to streamline, increase efficiency, decrease the costs um, in the clinical development stages. Um, other companies such, of our, such as ourselves have decided that we're going to try and develop new methods to develop drugs more quickly and make predictions that help us to understand the properties of drugs earlier on um, that we hope will allow us to scale the number of, of drugs that we're moving to clinic more quickly. And one thing that prompted me to ask the question in, in terms of machine learning and AI and the acceptability of that area of science to the end user, the end user being you and I, being the yeah. patient, that it's still a concept that maybe scares few people. And I think that is through a lack of understanding of the, the nuances. But are we moving, do you think, closer to a time that that acceptability is there and is therefore of benefit to people like you trying to utilize this area of science yeah so there was a there's a little bit of a de debate going on right now about okay so you know the tech industry can develop these tools for for healthcare, but 
Um, a lot of the doctors are saying, well, um, that thing you developed is not necessarily useful for me. You're not asking the right question. Um, and, you know, that's always going to be the case. It's always going to be the case in product development that the risk is that you develop a thing that's not useful. And the way the tech industry has solved that problem um, is uh, is really they've developed this role called a product manager. Um, and, you know, most product manager, most tech companies have this role um, internally. And these people are really the focus of that role is to figure out, okay, if we build this thing, how is it going to be useful for the end user? And I think ultimately, whenever you're building a business, you have to try to solve that problem. So in the application of machine learning for health, uh, we are going to continue to have this challenge of making sure that we understand how we're developing solutions that can actually reach patients and that can improve health um, in in the appropriate context. So, for example, we need to understand how physicians are making decisions um, if we want to develop a useful tool to enable them to make better decisions. Um, and so I would say currently um, I think there's a little bit of debate about whether things whether some of the technology is going to be useful. Um, but I think ultimately the companies that are successful at developing and innovating in the, in the healthcare space um, are going to take a bit of an obsessive um, look at, you know, how can we develop in ways that we are uh, assuredly making technology that is useful and that will impact health. Yes, useful and accessible to the doctors who yes. ultimately need to apply them with their patients. Right, and ultimately, you know, I think we are not going to replace doctors. What we are trying to do is, in a, in a way, augment. Um, and so I don't know if you've heard of the Da Vinci robot. Uh, the Da Vinci surgical robot mm. is a nice example. And so um, I think it is a very beautiful instrument that allows doctors to or surgeons to perform surgeries with a lot more precision um, and to uh, do things that they couldn't necessarily do previously. And it, it makes many surgical cases safer for patients. But ultimately, the robot's not performing the surgery. Ultimately, it's extending the capabilities of the physician to perform procedures differently. And freeing up the doctor to do what he does best, because I think this technology, these advances are going to, to fill a gap in the world of the doctor, where at the moment he might say he is overwhelmed, essentially trying to do everything. But if you can free up the surgeons and, and the doctors to do what only a human can do, I think we're all going to benefit. Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, another way to think about this, and we try to think about this from the drug discovery side is... The things that exist today exist in a certain context. So, for example, when you go to the physician um, and they use their stethoscope to listen to your heart, um, they can make certain diagnoses based on that tool um, and that sort of view through the, the world of the stethoscope. Um, now, there's another tool that they can use, and that's an ultrasound. And an ultrasound provides a different set of information, and the information provided by the ultrasound may allow them to make different sorts of uh, diagnoses and understand the patient context in a different way. Every tool that we develop, and machine learning techniques, artificial intelligence is no exception, will enable us to uh, understand health and disease in a different way. And we hope that these methods will uh, enable us to have more insight into how to both diagnose and treat diseases. I'm curious, as you live your life, we obviously on this podcast talk a lot about human longevity and health span or, or lifespan. I prefer health span. 
based on what you understand, what you have learned through doing the kind of work that you do, do you live your life in a certain way to nurture your longevity? Yeah, that's a bit of an existential question, I guess. Um, and I'll say no. <laughs> um, you know, I've learned over the course of my career that I find that I can make the most impact when I'm focused on uh, the thing that I'm most passionate about um, and most excited about in front of me. Um, and so I try to uh, essentially work on, you know, I'm passionate about healthcare and making an impact. And it's always about trying to figure out the best way to make the most impact. And I try to think um, exclusively about that and kind of move from spaces to spaces where um, I think I can, I can make a difference. Try not to think too much about, you know, 20 years from now, because you know, it's hard, hard enough to know where one is going to be in three years. You don't even have aspirations as to where you would like to be? Um, I have aspirations as to what I would like to, to achieve. Um, you know, and today I would say those aspirations are, um, I would like a recursion to uh, be a leader in the development of machine learning tools to develop drugs for hundreds of diseases. And I try to keep a singular focus on, you know, doing what I can uh, to build that towards uh, the goal of making an impact on the lives of patients. And I feel that, you know, in in five years, if we've achieved that, then that would be an extraordinary achievement and an extraordinary goal. Yeah, absolutely extraordinary. And then I'll need something else to do. And yeah. I might worry about aging at that point. Then, then think about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but it is fascinating, the convergence of traditional medicine, conventional medicine, the way that doctors are operating now, and, and new science. And the potential in that is, is extraordinary. Yeah, I, I mean, this is truly an exciting time to be in because we can now you know layer in um, these incredible advances from the technology industry um, alongside great advances in, in how we're performing biology and also automation. So I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether these approaches could have been taken 10 years ago and uh, certainly not. They could not have been. And, you know, we are kind of at the right point, at the tipping point, if you will, for technology to really begin to accelerate and advance how we treat patients. Ron, we've just touched the surface here in terms of the detail of, of what you're doing. If anyone wants really to, to do a deep dive into your work and, and follow what you do, where can they go? Uh, well, so they could start off on, so they can look up the work of Recursion on RecursionPharmaceuticals.com. And, you know, uh, folks are, I'm happy to connect with anyone that would like to talk more. Ronaldo, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thanks, Peter. We appreciate it. And I will put those details in the show notes for this episode at our website, which is com. You can follow us in social media at Lama podcast and uh, just a reminder that we're now available via multiple podcast streaming platforms uh, apple podcasts of course also uh, spotify now just search for live long and master aging many thanks to everyone at ted med for helping us with this episode and thank you for listening FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout.
That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.